welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And as we record this on Thursday morning, we have just gotten word that MLB is close to an agreement with the players to play ball. Uh, no, wait, uh, this just in, they are actually not close at all. Uh, wait, wait, now I'm being told that a deal is close for a 25-game season where every team makes the playoffs and games only last three innings. Uh, oops, wait, breaking news. It seems the MLB Players Association has drawn a mustache on a picture of Rob Manfred's wife. Uh, John, the news is changing every few minutes, but at this particular minute, what odds are you giving on MLB playing ball? And set me a line on the number of regular season games if they do play. Yeah, the under seems to be doing well on Thursday morning, but I'm going to ignore that and <laughs> uh, consider it bluster. So uh, I think 66 is my winning ticket on games, and I'm going to pair with July 19th opening day for a better payoff. Um, players won 89 games and 114 games. Uh, the owners bluffed to 48. They jumped to 66 by getting extra playoff teams for 2020 and 21. They make a lot of money that way. So, hmm. I mean, I hate the way the owners did this if they – pull it off and I wanted more baseball but you know Manfred the owners may not be quite as dumb as people think they are um of course none of them will get an endorsement from me for sainthood um by the way I was going to say beatification but I figured that might be a little too much Irish Roman Catholic for the audience (laughs) yeah you know why am I not surprised that the same league that still had guys playing preseason games amid COVID-19 the day after the NBA and NHL suspended play is having the hardest time figuring this out. Uh, but I, I lean the same way as you. I, I do still believe they'll play. I'd probably take the yes at anything about minus 200 or, or better. But uh, yeah, 66 is a pretty good line. I was kind of figuring anything over 70 feels un- unlikely now. And, um, you know, it's a shame. Once you get under half of a normal season, once it's about 80 or fewer, it starts to feel a little weak, but uh, of course I'll I'll take a baseball season with a giant asterisk attached over no baseball season at all, because uh, you know I, I need something to nap to on Sunday afternoons besides just golf. You know it's it's important for me to have at least two <laughs> sports napping options uh, during the summer, which uh, which I suppose qualifies as a extreme first world problem. Yeah, and and it, it's kind of rough, but you know as fans we have to root for the collective greed of the owners and players to be the winning ticket at the end. Right. Yeah. Hopefully their their collective greed will hopefully lead us somewhere, which uh, allows us to uh, selfishly enjoy some baseball over no baseball. So we'll see. Well, thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 96 of Gamble On. The podcasters union has successfully negotiated with SoundCloud to keep this thing going a little while longer. If you missed any of our previous 95 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud or on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And if you never want to miss an episode again, just tap that subscribe button. Yeah, and ever coming up a little later on the show, we're going to be joined by TVG on-air personality Mike Joyce. He's going to talk about horse racing and let us know what to expect this Saturday when the out-of-order 2020 Triple Crown gets started with the Belmont Stakes. Weird to say, but uh, <laughs> first, it's been an interesting news week in the world of gambling, I would say, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling.
The May 2020 revenue reports have been rolling in over the past week, and they all show an increase in sports betting action over April. May gave sports fans UFC 249 and the Tiger Phil Brady Manning golf match to bet on, along with all the usual off-brand international sports. So an improvement over April was fairly predictable. Uh, in Indiana, handle rose from $26.3 million to a little over $37 million. Uh, in New Jersey, handle more than doubled from $54.6 million in April to $117.8 million in May. And in Pennsylvania, sports betting handle went up from $46 million to $77.5 million. The bigger story in New Jersey and Pennsylvania, though, is the online casino revenue which continued to set records in both states as the coronavirus shutdowns continued, uh, up 29.5% to $55.8 million in Pennsylvania and up about 7% in New Jersey to $85.9 million. John, any early guesses on what to expect from June sports betting handle figures? And with land-based casinos and other businesses reopening, will the Pennsylvania and or New Jersey online numbers start to drop in June, do you think? I mean, let's see. Uh, June gets us a few more PGA Tour golf events, um, more boxing, more MMA, more NASCAR. Um, I think all three states in June will beat the May numbers, I would say. Um, as for online casino, I think it's just an unstoppable force. You know, my gut tells me that a lot of the growth is, is uh, continued market awareness of the public, uh, ever, ever growing. And uh, slots players and sports betting don't necessarily have a huge overlap, I don't think. It may be quite a while before New Jersey or Pennsylvania sees a year-over-year drop in online casino. And you notice Pennsylvania's uh, rise is, is larger because their market is less mature. So um, New Jersey has big numbers, but it can only grow so much. But Pennsylvania's numbers are going to really explode. Yeah, I'm I'm on the same page as you with regard to the online casino trajectory. I you know, I recall that one concern that we all had uh when the numbers first started jumping uh at, right when the the shutdowns began, we were all concerned that the economy and and jobs and people's potential lack of disposable income might slow the revenue down in a hurry, but we aren't really seeing that yet. Um it does seem that New Jersey, for the reason that you said, that the awareness has been out there longer for several years now, New Jersey is kind of reaching its its max, it would seem, more or less. You know, that's a fairly mature market. It's gotten its big coronavirus boost. Now the weather is nice and people are venturing out again. I would guess June will not quite equal May in New Jersey in terms of online casino, but in Pennsylvania, where awareness of online casino is still on the rise and that market isn't as close to maturation, even with land-based casinos opening up uh, in June in Pennsylvania, which they they haven't yet uh, in New Jersey, I would expect the online casino number to keep going up in Pennsylvania. Uh, And I definitely have the same feeling as you with regard to what what to expect from sports betting. Uh, June brings... Premier League soccer, uh, as you mentioned, boxing, Aussie rules football. I mean, those are minor, but they're a little something. But then the big ones, NASCAR, and especially that fairly steady diet of of real golf, not not just made for TV charity golf. Um, you know, based on Gary Rothstein's article on US Bets this week, in which FanDuel's John Sheeran said the Charles Schwab Challenge generated more action for them than the 2019 Masters. Uh, that suggests that uh, that having uh, regular golf back is going to make a huge difference. So. Yeah. Yeah, I would expect a rise in handle, maybe something like 20 to 25% higher than May, something like mm. that. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it sounds from your reaction like that's a slightly bigger percentage increase than your. Uh, uh, a little bit, but it is possible. Yeah, right. The Schwab numbers are amazing. I mean, the uh, tournament name is terrible. The field was great, <laughs> and uh, yeah, apparently the appetite is there. Yep, and and as was pointed out in the article, the fact that it was close with a lot of players in the running heading into the final day helped the betting there that they were able to keep generating uh, you know in-game betting of sorts right up till the end yeah exactly all right moving on to our next story you've written extensively john about the hypocrisy of the sports leagues which were vehemently opposed to legal sports betting until paspa was overturned and then suddenly they all loved sports betting uh well a crowning moment in the major american sports leagues embrace of sports betting arrived on monday when FanDuel and the NFL's Denver Broncos announced a partnership, the first formal agreement between a sports book and an NFL team. We figured something like this was coming after the NFL first announced such partnerships were allowed in February, and it's the Broncos in the brand new sports betting state of Colorado that got the first deal done. Under the deal, FanDuel gains access to the Broncos' official logos for use across sports betting and DFS offerings, and will also receive rights to marketing assets such as in stadium signage and radio, TV, and digital advertising. Uh, This part wasn't spelled out, but one assumes that the Broncos receive money from FanDuel in this deal. Uh, John, how significant is this in the sports betting landscape? And would you expect that by the time football season starts, every team in a legal sports betting state will have a partnership with a sports book? Yeah, I mean, the the Broncos news comes a day after the NFL and its partners explain in almost 200 pages of detail to the new judge in the $150 million New Jersey horseman sports betting case that the leagues all the way back in 2014 were on solid ground in predicting irreparable harm if Monmouth Park, (laughs) a Jersey Shore racetrack, took sports bets for even four weeks until the previous judge would have shut them down anyway. Um, You know, the NFL could have bolstered its case this week by pointing out that since the Supreme Court in 2018 allowed any state to allow sports books, the league has is, uh, uh, check that league has made money hand over fist in 2018 <laughs> and 2019. So they forgot to mention that in all these filings in almost 200 pages. Um, nobody ever believed the NFL would lose a nickel if betting on its games, which already numbered in the billions with illegal books and offshore right. internet companies by any measure, um, that if this was made legal. So luckily for the NFL, nobody will care when one team after another strikes deals like this. You know, I mean, fans of MetLife Stadium, for example, have been betting extensively and constantly during Giants and Jets games anyway on their mobile phones or right. pregame at the FanDuel Sportsbook across the way at the racetrack. So um, this is already happening. Nobody cares. Um, the league's you know, for whatever reason, uh, pretended that this was going to be bad for them. It's not. And so there's no controversy here. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We, we know where this is heading with these partnerships. We saw it on a smaller scale with DFS partnerships, um, especially if NFL games this season are played in empty stadiums. You better believe those teams will be looking for sportsbook partnerships to help make up for for some lost income. Um, Brett Smiley and Jill Dorson put together an excellent article on SportsHandle.com covering the full timeline. Uh, You know, 26 years of the NFL being opposed to sports gambling and then completely changing their tune the last two years because there's money to be made. A particular low point, uh, as the article reminded me was in June 2015 when the NFL made Tony Romo cancel a fantasy football <laughs> event because they were worried about appearances. And uh, here here we are now, five years after that, the Denver Broncos are just a couple of moves away from becoming the FanDuel Sportsbook Denver Broncos. Um, I'm, I'm mostly kidding. I, we're probably still 
more than uh, just a few moves away from that. But uh, uh, and and I certainly hope that doesn't happen. But it, yeah, it, it might eventually. I'm picturing logos on the jerseys pretty soon. <laughs> yeah, that that would come before a, an actual like renaming of the team. Yeah, the, lo- <laughs> the logos on the jerseys is, is probably the next step. And the the fact that this deal got done is a good indicator about how significant the Colorado sports betting market will be. I mean, FanDuel is one of the two current leaders in this space. This is a big investment. There's every reason to believe Colorado will be a major market along with other 2020 newcomers, Illinois and Michigan. You know, that, that would be kind of a fun game to play some future week when when the news is slow. Maybe we, we try and predict and rank the state betting handle yeah. leaders for like December 2021 or something like that. Uh, could, yeah. It could be a fun game. I'll, uh, agreed. All right. I'll, I'll put that one on a, on a sticky note and make myself a little reminder. <laughs> all right. For our final story this week, let's talk about land-based casinos and the way people spend money in them. On Tuesday, the AGA released what it calls Payments Modernization Policy Principles, which are based on polling showing that 57% of recent casino visitors now describe the option for digital or contactless payments as, quote, important. Traditionally, people use cash in exchange for chips to play casino games, but there is an increasing sentiment toward being able to use credit cards or phone payment apps at the table, and that has been amplified during the COVID-19 pandemic when passing paper bills around has become a minor health hazard. Uh, Interestingly, our friend and recent guest, Captain Jack Andrews, pushed back on this idea on Twitter, writing in response to your article reporting on the AGA's survey, quote, I don't support this at all. When you move casino gambling to digital currency, you take away the anonymity of gaming. The consumer gives up far too much for just a little more convenience. It's a slippery slope, end quote. Interesting counterpoint coming from someone who we know values his anonymity. What do you think, John? Does Captain Jack have a point? And are we headed toward a world where everyone will soon be able to buy their chips with Apple Pay if they want and be able to have a full casino experience without ever taking cash out of their pocket? Well, yeah, I, me- I remember a couple of decades ago when Consumer Reports, which is about as mom and apple pie a brand as there is, um, <laughs> they recommended very sternly that shoppers should not sign up for loyalty cards at the local supermarket because the savings they would get in coupons wasn't worth the loss of privacy. Hmm. And consumers responded emphatically – you know what? I like saving money and I'm not famous. <laughs> so nobody will care how much Haagen-Dazs and Doritos I eat each week. Show me the money. Right. <laughs> so uh, the point about loss of privacy is not only valid, but very much worth considering. It, it should be part of uh, anybody's uh, you know, thought process on this. But and a professional gambler obviously would indeed be wise not to have his success methodically chronicled uh, step by step for the casino. So I get it. Um, but as with grocery store cards, electronic payments for casino games, it's coming. It's coming soon. And, and a few patrons will complain, you know, for better or for worse about trading privacy for a comp room. Yeah. Um, In terms of just like the idea of cash versus cards versus phone apps and all that, I'm I'm kind of from that in-between generation where I'm familiar with using cash. It it isn't a foreign idea to me to have some cash in my wallet, but I I do much prefer credit cards and not opposed to payment apps at all. And certainly, you know, since COVID started, I'm not sure I've used cash once. Uh, I I can't remember a a time that I actually took cash out of my wallet since this all began. I will say from a responsible gaming standpoint, cash has its advantages at casinos. You know, if if I'm going to a casino, maybe I take out $300 at my bank ATM beforehand, uh, you know, no fees, of course, from uh, from my bank. And my plan is that's the max I can lose. And 
I can be disciplined about it in part because casino ATMs charge such offensive fees, so I can easily talk myself out of reloading. Um, but, you know, if I'm not using cash, if I'm just giving them my credit card or, or letting them scan something from my phone app, it's easier to go over my planned spending limit. Uh, so, so that's more of a concern for someone like me than the anonymity factor. I mean, I, I get where Captain Jack is coming from. But just like uh, in your Consumer Reports uh, example, uh, I think the desire for anonymity applies to a very small percentage of gamblers. Yeah, I would kind of go the other way, though. I think, uh, you know, somebody who, uh, you know, their wife or their girlfriend or their boyfriend or husband, whatever, leaves them and they're all upset and they take their entire paycheck and they cash it out and they show up and they blow, you know, however much money uh, in one night just out of, uh, you know, sort of – being despondent um, and nobody knows. Whereas if everything they do is electronic and they always bet, you know, 20 bucks maximum, or whatever, or 50 bucks. And then all of a sudden they're trying to bet $500 in, in one game, at least in theory, these companies claim that, Oh, we can flag that and we can either, you know, prevent the transaction or attempt or, you know, they, they just have a, a better track of what you're doing. So, right. Uh, you know, it, it kind of works both ways. I think in responsible gaming too. Yeah, that, that's a good point. Um, well, what, whatever your position, uh, I don't, I don't see a problem with uh, at least casinos expanding and, and giving the customer all options. You know, so that yeah. if if Jack wants to pay cash, he can. Um, but certainly during this health crisis, I think it's very important to at least give people the no contact option. Yeah, exactly, and and that's not only true for the consumer, but the uh, you know the workers too. They're they'd rather do it that way also. Yeah, so yeah, I think yeah, you know more options are better. That's the bottom line. Yep. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. This Saturday, Horse Racing's Triple Crown begins in the park where it usually ends, Belmont Park in New York, with the Belmont Stakes. Joining us now to talk about the Belmont and the state of horse racing is Mike Joyce, a host, analyst, and reporter for the International Horse Racing Network, TVG, where he's worked for nearly 20 years covering this sport he loves. Mike, thanks for joining us on Gamble On. That was a hell of an open, man. I could take some notes from that. You guys really do your homework before you start things out. <laughs> we did. Right? Yeah, we, we, we do. We read some interviews with you. We, uh, we read your, uh, your LinkedIn page. You know, we covered all the bases. But uh, so here's where I want to start is, is with the Belmont Stakes. Uh, in, in Saturday's race, Tis the Law is roughly an even money favorite. Uh, and we've heard that some owners are avoiding the race because of the horse's prowess. Uh, is Tis the Law really that dominant? Does he scare opponents off? And um, do the upside-down 2020 schedule or the shortened Belmont make this horse a bigger favorite than would normally be the case? Well, let's let's start. Is he that dominant? In this field, it looks that way. I mean, he's 6 to 5 on the morning line. He might get 3 to 5 at post time. He's far and away the best three-year-old as things stand right now. A reason for him being the best three-year-old far and away, both nationally and in the Belmont Stakes, is that we had three of the biggest defections of this crop the last couple of weeks. You had Charlatan and Nadal, both going on the sidelines. Nadal's done for his career. Charlatan probably won't be back until the fall. Um, and those were, you know, the one and one A of the two best horses from the Baffert camp. And then Maxfield with a condylar fracture earlier this week. So those defections make him tower above the three-year-old crop and the Belmont Stakes as things stand right now. I don't know that he's a scare people away kind of horse. Um, and I know that, look, there's nine horses lining up there to face him. And I don't think anyone's necessarily going to run away from just one horse. If they're, if all, let's say, Charlatan, 
Maxfield and Tis the Law are in there with, you know, Sole Volante, that might make you, you know, think, I don't know if I'm going to go there. You might not get four left, who is a late addition for Doug O'Neill, you know, throwing his hat in the ring with that sort of uh, field, you know, assembled. But with those defections and those horses on the sideline, yeah, he, he looks like every bit of an outstanding, you know, short price. There's some new shooters that could, you know, give him a run. And um, there's a wise guy horse um, tapping to win for Mark Cassie. He's six to one on the morning line. I rarely disagree with morning line odds makers, especially David Aragona does a fantastic job uh, for the New York Racing Association. But I think that horse is going to get bet. I've heard way too much steam about him coming into this race. I know it's short rest. It's only 14 days, but he's really fast. Um, and the one turn mile and eighth configuration really does help him. He draws the rail, which doesn't matter. I think they're going to play come and catch me. And he's the fastest horse in the race, and I think by a good margin. So I, I think that's going to be your second choice come post time. But we're splitting hairs. I still think you're going to get you know seven to two, four to one on him. Okay, but so the the order of the races and and all that sort of stuff, and especially and them shortening this race, th- those aren't as big a factors as simply the the fact that all these other horses have been dropping out. Right. I mean, look, a, a one turn mile and an eighth doesn't necessarily work for Tis the Law. I would love to see him go a mile and a half. I would love to see him you know, go a mile and a quarter and go two turns. I don't think he's going to be worse at those distances. It just changes what the race is. Right. Um, and incidentally, I think this year, the Triple Crown, um, I don't know what the defections, I might have to rethink this stance, but I've said for years, I think the Kentucky Derby is the most overrated race on the planet. I know it's the biggest event in horse racing, but as races go, it's all right. You know, I mean, it's a... <laughs> It's a bunch of three-year-olds, a 20-horse field, which is, you know, unusual, and we don't really need. It should be 14 horses. Um, they're all going a mile and a quarter. They're all rushing to get into it because it's the Derby. And you usually have three or four horses come out of the Derby that are awesome, and then you have 16 also-rans that do nothing. And I don't necessarily think it serves the sport to have this Derby madness um, that we have. I think, you know, it, it takes horses off the trail later in the year. Um, so – I think this revamp schedule, the Triple Crown, I think it has the potential to make it a better Triple Crown year. It's infinitely more interesting. Look, it's 2020 is the throw a monkey wrench in the machine works of absolutely everything in your life. 2020 is not the year that you know people are going to look back on fondly. But this Triple Crown could be better because of it, because you're going to have a derby you know, in, in September and a Preakness in October. You're going to have more well-developed, more well-rested, more sound horses. And there's so much progression in these animals, a lot of times, look, one of my favorite derby winners of the last several years was Nyquist, right? Because he was only the second horse in the street sense to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile and then keep that run going into the derby. And he was only the second undefeated derby winner since Seattle Slough. So I loved him. But after the derby, he never won a race. He wasn't better than everybody else per se. He just developed faster. He was better at that point in time. But then the real running started later in the year. And by the time the Preakness of Belmont played out, then you're looking at the Midsummer Classic and the Travers. He, look, he was just any other horse at that point. And I think because the dates are later, I think it actually is better for the level of competition. Are we going to see 20 horses in the Derby this year? Probably. But we might see 20 better horses than what we'd see in the first Saturday in May. Okay. Yeah, how about talking about this sequence? Um, obviously, everything's topsy-turvy in 2020. But, you know, uh, the Belmont goes from third to first. The Derby goes from first to second. The Preakness goes from second to third. Um, the Haskell at Monmouth Park in New Jersey is uh, usually uh, is always after the three races. And sometimes that's better and sometimes it isn't. Um, you know, you mentioned the Travers. But, you know, kind of uh, new post positions, you might say, for all these uh, all these events. Um, you know, who, who drew the better posts and who, who did worse, uh, you know, 
again, circumstances beyond everybody's control, but as it worked out, uh, which race do you think uh, benefits the most from the change? I don't know that I'm going to be able to answer it accurately right now. Right now, I'd say the Belmont. Um, I'd say, I know people are complaining it's not a mile and a half, but look, I, I love seeing a grade one at a mile and a half with these three-year-olds. I think it's, I think it's an awesome race. I think, you know, I wish we had more mile and a half races. I'd, I'd be a proponent of the Jockey Club Gold Cup being a mile and a half. It doesn't serve horses trying to get to the British Cup Classic for doing that. So it's a mile and a quarter. I would love to see, I mean, basically it's the Belmont and the Brooklyn and that's it, right? Those are your mile and a half dirt races. I would like to see a couple more of them. But in this year, the attention is on New York. It's the only game in town. And you have a, a one-turn mile and eighth that's going to probably provide a little bit more of an exciting race. And you have a superstar in it. It would have been better had we had those other horses. The defections hurt it without a doubt. As things stand right now, I think it's better for the Belmont. Because the problem the Belmont runs into is if you don't have a horse when the Derby and the Preakness, people don't care about it. Right? The third leg of the Triple Crown only means something when the Triple Crown is on the line. Now, as hardcore racing people, yeah, we love the Belmont. Belmont Day, you know, you have Belmont Day has become, over the last several years, because of Marty Panta and Reed um, arranging the, the stake circuit in general in New York, uh, has become one of the best days of racing of the year. I mean, it's the like Belmont Day. Some people would take it over Breeders' Cup Saturday in a lot of respect. I mean, it's that good. So I, I think Belmont Day um, this year, probably gets a little bit better. I think, I hope, I hope we get, you know, more attention on horse racing because of being able to keep running during this time with all the other sports shut down. But I think by the time the Derby and the Preakness come around, especially the Preakness in October, the NBA is going to be back. Hopefully the NFL is running. We're, we're going to be back into our usual space in horse racing, which is, you know, not necessarily the limelight of sports fans. Hopefully we drag some fans along with us. But, you know, that first Saturday in May has always been when people look for the Derby. Labor Day, we'll see what other sports in the other leagues do, but they might have some competition right around them. So I don't necessarily know it's going to be better for the other two jewels. Hmm. You kind of answered the question that I I was going to ask you next, which is that whether there is a a chance that these Triple Crown races gain a new and and maybe long-term audience because of the fact that they're not up against baseball and a lot of these other major major sports. Um, so, uh, you know, what is it, is it sort of, would you say then that there's um, added attention from within the horse racing community on the Belmont to have something exciting and interesting happen that can uh, keep the attention of, of these sort of popping in for the first time horse racing fans? So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of a qualifier because I believe TVG Green. And when I got the job at TVG, I really did believe in the original business model and it was to grow um, fandom. I think horse racing is intricately interesting and it's naturally interesting through you know, a certain percentage of the population. Not a huge percentage, but one to two percent of the population, if you get into the track, you get them there, they will be hooked. So it's about exposing it to more people. I can tell you through how many eyeballs we've had on our shows on TVG and what we've been doing on NBC Sports Network, the handle, the amount of betting that's been going on, um, horse racing has certainly seen a bump in popularity. I will say that, now it's a little bit different of a business model because horse racing was already a pretty big deal in Australia, but I will say this, horse racing in Australia was in decline until they got sports betting and it was legalized throughout that country. And then it saw a natural growth along with the growth of sports betting. I think one of the things that can really help the growth of horse racing, and I hope that we've done a good job of dragging sports betting fans over, is that all gamblers are price sensitive. And if you're price sensitive, naturally you're going to drift toward horse racing because 
you know, I, I don't bet a lot of sports because I'm at the track every day and I'm betting horses. It's really hard for me to bet a football game and get, you know, plus 125 on my money and have to wait an entire four quarters. It's like watching a three and a half hour inquiry, right? Like I just can't do it. But if you are, if you are into the action and you like the pricing model, you're going to come over to horse racing eventually. And we've seen that happen in other markets. So hopefully we can get both of those things in combination to grow the sport a little bit. But look, horse racing needs generational fixes, right? We're not going to have, you know, the pandemic of 2020 solve all our, our problems because all the other sports shut down. It needs a generational shift. We need to start you know, moving horse racing back into a more prominent spot in the sports fan and the sports better mindset. And it's going to take 20 and 30 years to do it. We're, we're not going to fix it in one year. Well, how, how about Mike though, about um, I'm amazed at the numbers in Australia from uh, adding fixed odds uh, wagering. Um, it, it didn't cut the uh, average age of the customer in half, but it got, uh, you know, reasonably close to that. Um, a, a younger generation that had no interest in the sport suddenly, you know, when they got their expectation, this plays into what you mentioned about sports betting, they know that when they bet at six to one, they get six to one. Whereas horse racing has now seems kind of outdated where you had six to one and then at post time, it's three to one and you win, but you feel like you got cheated because, uh, you know, you didn't get the number you wanted. Um, uh, I'm wondering if there's something about the culture of Australian and, and uh, young Australians that, you know, kind of led to that. Could that happen again here in, in uh, the U.S.? I mean, Monmouth Park is going to uh, try it out this summer and New Jersey's going to be a pioneer again. But uh, I wonder if A, it's going to work and B, if other states are going to follow, even if it does work. Well, I'll, I'll tell you this. I do think that the customer wants fixed odds, right? And I don't think there's any question about that. And I do think horse racing has a horrible track record of listening to our customers. But Australia, all of Europe, they're all bookmaking cultures. The parimutuel wagering model that we have in the U.S. is pretty specific to the U.S., and it's how we got around bans on gambling 100 years ago. And we had a monopoly on gambling, right? Your options used to be you wanted to make a bet. You had to either go to the racetrack or you had to fly to Vegas. And that was it, right? Now there's been a proliferation of casino gambling. Horse racing and the parimutuel model haven't necessarily stood up as strongly to it as they would have in the past. I will, I will caution this, though. I do think we need fixed odds. You know, at one point, you know, my company was we've been bought by everybody now. I don't even know what our corporate overlord <laughs> situation is. But, you know, at one point it was Betfair. And I was a huge – I mean, I, I, I was absolutely a proponent of the exchange because I thought it was such a great model for, for the, the better, right? You could, you could lock in your odds. You could sell bets. You could buy bets. You could, you could trade like it was the stock market. But I would caution for everybody who's clamoring for this is that the beauty of the parimutuel system is that it takes the risk away from the racetracks. And it's the only gambling model that does that. Um, casinos aren't like that. You're betting against the house. It's the only thing where you're betting against the people. When your money is taken out of the pool ahead of time and the racetracks can operate, that's why in the U.S. we can have – I know like, people complain like, oh, these maiden races at, at Santa Anita, they're only running for 56000 you know what maiden races are running at Wolverhampton in England? I mean, they're running for bags of chips, right? When the bookmakers are the ones taking the gambling dollars, the racetracks can't operate the way they do in the U.S. And especially in the U.S. where we have fixed racing circuits, right? And in the, in the U.K. and in France, I mean, they'll run somewhere for a couple of weeks and then they're on with it. But we're at Santa Anita for like 35 weeks a year, right? We don't have that luxury. So you need that, you need that business model to take the risk away from the racetrack and lock in the financing, especially for the bricks and mortars, which are under a lot of pressure. So I applaud Monmouth for instituting fixed odds betting, and I hope there's a way to do it. I'm not smart enough. I don't, you know, I, I, when I was in college, I majored in political science, and I 
I minored in the back bowls of Vail because I went to the University of Colorado and I was, you know, I was skiing more. It took me six years to get out of, out of school. So I'm not smart enough to figure this out. But with fixed odds, with the exchange, there has to be a mechanism that takes that risk away from the people that are putting on the show. And those are the racetracks. So I, for the customers, I hope fixed odds works. But it's not going to just – we can't on one summer declare it a success or a failure. It's going to be – I mean, it, it is a road that they're starting down, and I hope it's a road that they're willing to go down for years and years and years to come to figure out how to make it work. I'll tell you one thing. I've seen some professional uh, horse racing players at Meadowlands Racetrack have kind of a syndicate, and I've seen them work exchange wagering. One of the things I really liked, and this uh, a lot of horse racing fans can relate to, is sometimes you know the favorite's not going to win but you don't right. know who is going to win and you're kind of stuck and you might take the second and third, you know, favorite and exact or something like that, but you're not even too sure of it. But one of the things you can do in exchange wagering is offer a bet that the horse doesn't win. And if you're confident in that, it doesn't mean you're going to win, but at least you get to uh, act on your impulse, which is, I know the favorite's not going to win. And uh, it's just one of the many cool things about exchange wagering to me. Right. And in, in my world, it's, I know Todd Shrupp isn't going to win. I'm just going to lay odds on whoever Todd is picking and I can do that all day long. <laughs> All right, let me let me change the subject uh, here and throw in one quick non-horse racing question, Mike. Uh, I know you're a huge Chicago sports fan, and I understand you were at the flu game in Salt Lake City in 1997. How do you feel about it being rebranded, the bad pizza game? And do you believe the story that we were sold in that Last Dance documentary? I don't know that I believe the story. Um, I thought, you know, Jalen Rose was the one who came out like seven years ago and said, everyone knows Michael was hung over. Um, so I don't, I don't, I don't necessarily know that I believe the pizza story. I don't know that I believe the hangover story either because there's a slew of stories uh, about, you know, Michael and Scotty where they would be out on the road and they would, you know, go out and stay out till three in the morning with players on the other team. And then those players would, you know, be, you know, driving up to the facility for the game the next day just in a terrible shape. And Michael would be standing outside their locker room, smoking a cigar, laughing at him as they walked and hung over. So he, he was kind of impervious to the, the after effects of alcohol and, and staying out. So I don't know, know that it could have been a, a hangover either, but um, no, I think we'll keep it the flu game. I will say this, that that game in Salt Lake City was um, one of the, it's a, a funny story behind it. My brother, Eugene is, he, he actually runs a racetrack. He runs several racetracks in Wyoming and, a racing syndicate, but he is uh, like, he's just one of those guys. Like he's magical. Like he can make anything happen. We went to that game with no tickets. Um, we walked in his friend, Tom Finch, who had a lot of uh, ancillary businesses. He actually, you know, the giant Sony Trinitron screens back in the day that would be outside the stadiums. During the final. He owned two of them. And so he had the contract to do it in front of the, the Delta center. And then the, the, the Bulls games, he was one of those guys that was kind of in, I wouldn't say Michael's inner circle, but Michael's outer circle. Uh, and he was a good friend of him friend of ours he's like hey I have two press passes and Eugene's like all right me and Mikey are coming down so we go down to the Delta Center I'm like well how are we going to get him and he's like well Finch is already inside so we got to get inside to get the press pass I'm like well don't we need the press pass to get inside he's like don't worry about it so my brother and this is in 98 so or 97 so he's got one of those those cell phones back then with you know the size of a shoebox, right it was like one of these brick cell phones so he goes just look for the highest concentration of police officers you can find as we're like walking around the Delta Center. We'd like parked at some parking lot like down the street. He's got a briefcase. I'm wearing like a like a sport coat. I'm 19 years old at the time, 20 years old, 19 years old. And I was like, well, there. And so there's the, the fence where you can see where like everyone goes in. And there's at least 15 cops. So my brother starts talking into this phone, which I don't even think worked. I don't even think the thing worked. <laughs> like he's talking. 
and he's he's pushing me up to the fence and he pushes me up the fence and he holds the phone against his chest. He looks at the cop, he's like, hey, come here. He goes, I need to get to the NBC truck right now. The cop's like, oh yeah, come right in. The cop opens the fence, walks us into the into the compound. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me, that works. <laughs> John, get, he, Eugene gets back on the phone, starts talking. He's like, okay, we're going to be there in a second. We're fine. I'm like, I, he's having me carry his briefcase. He's like, like walking like I'm like his like bodyguard or something. And so we walk in through the tunnel, like in the bowels of the Delta Center. I walk out onto the floor and I'm standing 10 feet from the floor and I'm looking as, you know, like Ron Harper is taking a layup. And I'm like just standing there, like, the, you know, game six of the NBA Finals. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me. This just happened. And he's like, okay, look for Finch. I'm like, look for Finch. And then Tom Finch, who's like six foot five, stands up. He's three rows back. He's like, hey. So Huge walks up. He only got one seat. He gives me a press pass. He goes, all right, go figure out where the press room is. So I walked all the way up, and I, st- I sat on press row and watched the game from up there, like in between all these beat writers covering the game. <laughs> wow, that's crazy. And then you ended up getting to see a, a historic, famous game on top of all that. So Yeah, it was pretty – and it, we nobody really knew – until you heard whispers after halftime that he was sick because you're so far removed from the action. So you kind of like hear guys talk about it. So it was like, it travels like a rumor through the press. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I got to say as a 1990s NBA beat writer, I'm both amused and horrified by that story. <laughs> 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 but anyway, let's, uh, let's close up with the, uh, the Belmont. I know it's a little early uh, and uh, you can tell us when, when uh, people should, when and where people should look for your actual final Belmont pick, but uh, uh, in the early stages in midweek here, um, anything you kind of like or recommend? I mean, obviously you're probably not going to say go heavy on the favorite, not, not much uh, uh, upside there, but uh, anything you're kind of looking at? Right. So, so tap it to win is where I'm, I'm going to do like a heat check come post time. I, like I said, there's too much steam behind him right now for me to believe that you're going to get that six to one. He was late at the morning line. I've just, I've heard too many things. I've read too many things. And I think everyone's going to be able to look at the, at the, at the form and say, Hey, look, he's the fastest horse in here. He's going to get the lead. They're going to one turn mile. And you know, he handled a mile and 16 pretty easily last time out. And it's, Short rest, but Cassie is excellent on this. Also, the interesting thing is Cassie, Mark Cassie, who's ne- who had never won a Triple Crown race before last year, could win his third consecutive Triple Crown race without winning the Derby, which is something mm. that would never, ever be done again mm. um, because he won the Preakness with War of Will and the Belmont with Sir Winston. And then he'd come back and win the Belmont again if that horse were to hold on. So I think that's where I'm leaving, um, where I'm leaning right now. Um, I'm definitely not – there's nothing exciting about the, the three to five you're going to get on, on Tis the Law. Sol Volante is the horse. I have no idea what to do with. I've covered every one of his races. He is just so unspectacular to me, and yet he's always there, and he gets a lot of attention, and he should be. But there's nothing really, um, nothing really about him makes you know makes me get excited. But those are the horses that usually beat me, so I'm trying to be wary of him. Uh, I'll say Doctor Post right now, the, the the Fletcher horse coming off of that win and the Unbridled. He's is it the Unbridled? I can't remember what the stakes name he was, but you know he's he's really good. Um, he won his maiden race, and then he comes back and very next start I, I always love horses that can kind of you know build off that maiden in their next if they would use the condition or not if they use that allowance condition or they go right into a stakes race doesn't matter but when they parlay that maiden win to a stakes win that's when you kind of know they win those back-to-back races they've got the talent you know it's Pletcher in New York I think he's another one that the one turn mile helps or the one turn mile and an eighth I keep saying a one turn mile the one turn mile and an eighth helps him um so I mean those are those are the horses that that have really you know right now and these things can change. And I will say this. Four left goes in here for um, Team O'Neill and, and Redham Racing. He was the horse that won the, uh, the, the UAE 2000 Guineas in Maidan. That was the lead up to the UAE Derby. 
Um, and that's a horse that I know, Doug, they were leaning toward um, uh, the Woody Stevens because they didn't want to take the distance of the, the, the Belmont at a mile and eighth. But I think the more they thought about it, they thought the mile and an eighth could be in his wheelhouse. He's always worried that four left had some distance limitations. But, I mean, it's Doug O'Neill. They win races at huge prices. I, I love when they – they're like Dallas Stewart. They don't care how everybody else is doing. They know their horse is doing well. They're going to go in there. Um, so he's the horse at 30 to 1, four left. He's fast, and if there is, you know, if there, there's only two speed horses in this race, and that's the Tappet to win, and then four left is another one who's fast. He's drawn outside, right? So four, so he'll be able to dictate the pace a little bit from his position. And, you know, one of the old adages is, is if there's only two speed horses, bet one of the speed horses. Um, and if that's the case, one of those horses is going to be 30 to one out there, and that's four left. So he's the one that's interesting, right? Now, his law sits, sits a perfect trip. He makes his own trip. Um, at a one-turn mile and eighth, this is where post position means the least. I mean, I couldn't think of a half mile into that first turn. He makes his own trip because his, his cruising speed, he can effortlessly go with that tactical speed to just put him where, wherever he wants. Um, he could be far superior to everybody else, and he can gallop out. That's fine. If he wins, I'll find a three to five shot to bet some other day. I'm okay with not cashing. But those three horses I told you are the ones I'm leaning toward. All right. Great stuff. Really good talking to you, Mike. And uh, I can, your, your passion for the sport really comes through uh, in, in everything you have to say about it. So it's, it's great to talk to you and uh, thanks for coming on the show and uh, hopefully we'll have a, a fun race this weekend. All right. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, guys. Two men, $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. Bankroll is growing again as we went 2-0 last week, scoring wins in our areas of expertise, boxing, and golf. I bet $188 to win 100 on the Marius Vock-Kevin Johnson fight lasting the full 10 rounds, and it did, with Vock winning a decision. And John made a well-timed $100 bet on Colin Morikawa after one day of play to finish in the top 10 at plus 138 odds, and Morikawa delivered with a second-place finish. So that means collectively we won $238 for the week, and we are now up $427 overall, and we still have $770 on hold in futures bets, and that leaves us with $9,657 available to bet with this week, and I'm up first. I know you saw the news, John, that a better at MGM Grand in Las Vegas put nearly $188,000 on <laughs> boxer Gabriel Flores Jr. in a fight that takes place tonight to win a mere $4,173. He's laying 1 to 45 on Flores. Um, I am not going to be making that bet, uh, not even at the better price that I found of 1 to 33. Uh, I don't think it makes sense to risk. $200 of our bankroll to win six bucks. Uh, so instead, let's see if I can turn my Australian Football League betting into a streak. And let's stick with my friend's team, the Geelong Cats. They're the biggest favorite on the board this week as they take on the Carlton Blues as 27.5-point favorites. Uh, but I'm getting a discount at DraftKings. Geelong is minus 109 instead of minus 110. That's some value right there. Uh, so uh, let's risk $109 to win 100 on the Cats to win by 28 or more as I try to get lucky again without being able to name a single player on either team. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate you leaving it to me to boast about a PGA Tour winning streak on the podcast now. Uh, but 
stuck on five for a couple of months and uh, grow to six as uh, yeah. Morikawa kicked away a win on the last two holes. But um, that's my fifth straight win where I didn't even have to have a sweat on the back nines. So that's pretty good. Nice. Um, well, I know I'm not counting that Tiger versus Phil match should, uh, that I bet on in my calculations. This is PJ Tour is my stomping ground. So let's <laughs> okay. just pretend that never happened. Um, my next trick, uh, give me South African Brandon Grace uh, this weekend at 100 to win 138 at the RBC Heritage Tournament at Hilton Head, South Carolina. Um, all the 2016 RBC champ needs to do is place in the top 30 uh, to be a winner. And he was top 20 in Fort Worth last weekend. Uh, I think it's a good course for this horse. All right. That will do it then for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, Mike Joyce. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. And with that, John, the floor is yours. Please take us out. Well, we just talked about Captain Jack and, and the wisdom of looking at more than just one angle when we're considering things. And uh, that was underscored on Wednesday. I, I noted Meadowlands Racetrack, which uh, reopened for racing last weekend, uh, though with no spectators. They had canceled plans uh, this weekend to open their outdoor West Deck for visitors to eat, drink, and watch the races with state-approved pandemic precautions such as masks and social distancing. You know, my first thought was... Um, you know, man, the track only needed 100 RSVPs uh, either night to uh, try the experiment, and they couldn't even get that. So, you know, racing fans, you older, and, and the, the grim fact is, and I even looked it up, uh, Bergen County has recorded 1,673 COVID-19 deaths, and 140 of those are in uh, tiny East Rutherford, which has fewer than 10,000 residents. So um, I, that's a good rationale. And then the very same Captain Jack reminded me of something I was aware of, but hadn't factored in. Uh, neither the Meadowlands nor Monmouth Park yet has gotten the go-ahead for patrons to use outdoor kiosks to make wagers. So, sure, they could bet any time on their smartphone if they own one and if they have any apps on it at all, much less a horse racing one. Um, so my instinct had some validity, but Captain Jack's has more. They don't want to show up and watch races and not be able to bet on them in a the traditional way. Um, and as one of Jack's followers, uh, SD period ball buster, but it's so poetically. Uh, exactly. The track isn't a petting zoo. <laughs> so with that, until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.